2: From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. As you might imagine, life on a film set is an explosion of work and play. A group is thrown together into a maelstrom of practical and creative energy, all committed to creating something special, something memorable, and something successful. It's an incredible intimate instant family where pretenses and walls are often dropped and cast and crew become as close as friends and colleagues can get. And then after the rap party, even with the best intentions, those relationships drift away and you're on to the next project with your new family and new best friends. It's a sincere relationship and everybody truly intends to continue these important intimacies. But more often than not, especially with production being spread out all over the planet, it just doesn't happen. When a production can bring an opportunity to bring back key cast and crew members with whom you've established those relationships we will jump at the chance you create a collection of reliable players who you can rely on for their talent but also for the joy of being in their presence it's been my honor to work repeatedly with actors like matt frewer henry thomas annabeth gish Stephen weber dan martin and others Even when you don't see each other for years, it seems like life picks up right where you left off last time and nothing has changed. And a film set is all the better for it. I first met our guest Jamie Lee Curtis when I was doing specialized genre publicity for The Fog, and our paths have joyously crossed over the years. But decades had passed before we did the Halloween Kills live stream last year up on the Universal backlot. I'm excited to be back in touch with an old friend and visit the past, present, and future of one of my favorite actors and people whose diverse talents go far beyond those of a genre icon after this. This episode is sponsored by the new film, Significant Other, starring Jake Lacey and Meka Monroe. Dread Central's Marybeth McAndrews calls it a surprising and twisty thriller featuring incredible performances from its two stars. Significant Other is now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Also, this episode is sponsored by Gravitas Ventures' new film, The Inhabitant. High school is a nightmare for any teenager, but Tara lives in the shadow of a harrowing family curse. Don't miss this horrifying reimagining of the infamous Lizzie Borden story. You'll scream for this chilling psychological horror ride. Watch The Inhabitant on demand now. Jamie, thank you so much for being here. It's so great to see you.
1: I know. I'm happy to be here with you. We had a tiny, tiny technical glitch. Here's the thing about modern world. You all of a sudden are a technical expert. You're a lighting expert. You know, (laughs) it's interesting. Those used to be specialty jobs that you would hire people for. And the one thing that the pandemic did is create a world where we are our own which is actually really good is that we're our own tech people. We're our own lighting people. We're our own makeup people. We're our own wardrobe people. Like we, to thine own self, be true, take care of yourself and do your thing. So I'm happy to be here with you in this, in this place, on your virtual world, (laughs) Well, on your wonderful show, which is very popular.
2: Oh, thank you. Well, it's really great to have you. We're in our sixth year, and I can't believe we haven't had you before this, other than the live stream from last year, which was a lot of fun. But, you know, you started out, you're the daughter of movie stars. Is that where your passion for the movies came from?
1: No, I didn't have a passion for the movies, to be perfectly honest. I wasn't a movie lover. Um the strongest memory I have of a movie was Oliver. Um, I remember there was the scene where Shaney Wallace gets killed um, by Oliver Reed. And I remember seeing it in Beverly Hills at the theater that, um, on the bottom of Beverly Drive and my mother covering my eyes and me kind of wanting to see. I'm not a movie. I wasn't raised a movie lover. I wasn't a film buff. Um I enjoyed movies when I saw them, but they weren't part of my life. Um, I, you know what I mean? I just, I wasn't that person. Um, films were not a super important thing in my life at all. And I became an actress by accident. So yeah,
2: how did that call out to you? How did that world open up to you?
1: Well, it it, it literally was an accident. Um, you know, I was a ham. So I was never I was never in the plays. I was never in theater. I was a dancer. I was a cheerleader. You know, I needed a lot of attention, but I was not an actress. And uh, I went to college, although I shouldn't have gone to college. I had no business in college. The college that took me, my mother was the most famous woman who had ever graduated from the college. So, you know, I had a legacy. Uh, uh, acceptance there, even though I had a D plus average, I was a oh, wow. non, I was a non-student and, uh, I can I, you know, I, I, I took corrections. I was going to be a police officer or a social worker.
2: Oh, blue steel comes to mind.
1: Well, thank you. But, um, <laughs> I, I was going to be a police officer or a social worker and I minored in being a little sister at a frat, um, you know, <laughs> and I, and I took a drama class. I think it was just like intro, whatever. And at Christmas, I went home at Christmas and um, a, a man who used to teach tennis at a friend of mine's house, uh, I ran into him at her house. And he said he was managing actresses and they were looking for Nancy Drew. And should I go up for it? And I was like, okay. His name is Chuck. <laughs> his name is Chuck Bender. I'm sure you've run into him in your years. And Chuck put me up for the part. I didn't get it, but something happened. And he said, you know, they liked you or whatever. And so I took the month of January off from college, where you could do independent studies. I wrote to the drama department. I said, Can I take a month and write a paper trying to break into show business in Los Angeles and get credit for my one month class for drama? And they said yes. And at the end of that month, after going on auditions and taking dance classes and whatever, I signed a seven year contract at Universal Studios and quit college. The last thing I thought I would have been was an actor. It was a total, uh, total accident. And of course, Chuck Binder, I am grateful to and for, and will will always give him the credit that without Chuck Binder, I would not be an actress.
2: And we are all grateful for that too. So thank you, Chuck. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, what's interesting is your first major role, uh, as a regular, uh, on a series called Operation Petticoat, which was based yeah. on a movie that your father starred in. How I know. ironic is that?
1: Well, it's ironic and I'm sure it was fun for the press department to have a little, uh, you know, Tony's daughter is playing the part that Dina Merrill played in the pilot, you know, in the show that Tony was in and blah, blah, blah. It was it was cute. It was a ridiculous job. It was a half hour. <laughs> it was a half hour single camera TV series with 13 regulars. <laughs> I mean, wow. it was insane. <laughs> and I was fired from that job after the first season. We debuted on ABC. I was a series regular. It was like a big deal. And then I got fired, thought my life was over. And then once again, Chuck Binder. Um, told me that there was this movie casting and he put me up for the part of Laurie Strode. I will say this. When I got fired from Operation Petticoat, it was the absolute worst day of my life. I thought I would, A, I thought I'd lose my contract. B. I I, you know, had an apartment. I didn't know how I'd pay for it. I thought my career was over and the miracle is that had i not been fired from operation petticoat i would never have been available to audition for halloween the the part that changed my life completely and operation petticoat got canceled like in its second week of the second season so (laughs) I would have been out of a job and I would have missed out on this opportunity, which uh, I was able to to turn into a forty (laughs) four. Yeah. Yeah. How amazing
2: is that? Well, what I love is that you embrace the Laurie Strode ness of your career, whereas a guy like Christopher Lee always resented uh, that his fame came from Dracula denied it, would would put it down. And, you know, this is something, it created a career that allowed you to use that as a springboard to show how wide your talents
1: range. Well, A, I didn't know I had any, to be perfectly honest, <laughs> because I wasn't trained. You know, Christopher Lee may have been a, I don't know his history, but he may have been a, you know, seriously trained theater actor and oh, probably he was. went Okay, so of course he hated the fact that this genre was the thing he was known for when he wanted to be known for playing Macbeth. That has not been my path. (laughs) I did not go to acting school. I I did not play Lady Macbeth and therefore am frustrated that I'm playing Laurie Strode. I never thought I was gonna be an actor. And so, although I did feel it was going to be limiting at one point in my life, I've never dissed it. I've never been like, well, that's bad. I just understood that maybe there was an opportunity to do something more than that. And if I had that opportunity, I better take it and make a definitive break, which is when I did Halloween two, and then said I was no longer going to do horror movies. Not again, because I felt that they were not Good. It was simply so that I would have an opportunity to do something else. Right
2: outside the box. Well, well, let's go to when Halloween was made. This was a three hundred and forty thousand dollar movie. It became the most successful independent film of all time when it came out. So, what did that feel like? You're suddenly the
1: star. Nothing. Nothing. nothing.
2: You weren't recognized on the street. Mick
1: Garris. Nothing, because you have to remember. It was a little low budget horror film, no matter if it caught fire around the country and people liked it and it made money. I didn't make any money from it. And I certainly didn't get any jobs from it. And I, you know, nowadays when someone debuts in a movie, the machine, you know, turns them into this big star and whatever. That was not my path. This was made in 17 days and then in October it came out and then nothing happened and um very happily I got two jobs after Halloween. I did a Love Boat episode with my mother yes, playing mother and daughter <laughs> where my mother and father accompany me on my honeymoon on the Love Boat. <laughs> um And then I did a Charlie's Angels episode where I played a professional golfer. So for me, those were big guest star parts, but I did not get any film work and I wasn't going to get any serious work. And John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, who at that point had become friends of mine, dear friends of mine, Deborah and I best girlfriends, Um, Um, I think they felt bad because, of course, John and Deborah had the success of Halloween, gave them all sorts of entree. And now they were going to be able to do this movie, uh, The Fog. And they wrote the part in The Fog for me and my mother um, uh, as a way to say, well, we 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 think you deserve to have work. And then from the fog, then I started to get some actual movie work in other horror movies.
2: Right. There was Prom Night and Terror Train in Canada, the tax uh, tax break movies. But the, the term Scream Queen was really coined for you. You were the one. You were the sun rising under that title.
1: <laughs> well, look, I'm sure... My mother <laughs> would yes. disagree with you. Uh, the late great mother would disagree with you. Yeah. And um, I, 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 it was a, it was a, it was an attachment that, you know, when you're 19 years old or 20 years old to be the queen of anything is cool. And it gave me, it, it it meant that there was some level of acceptance of me as something, which when you're a young actress hustling, trying to get work, you'll take, I mean, you'll take it. It wasn't something I walked around with, like, oh. oh, oh. No, you
2: weren't wearing your crown to the. Uh, the supermarket. I, I
1: no, I understood the need for it, and I was grateful for it, and I fed it, because I went off and made a couple horror movies. Yeah. Um, but it was after that when I understood that if I wanted any other type of career i needed to take a step away from that and i did and i did very consciously um with gratitude in my heart but i did take a step away and within i want to say two weeks um my memory is that it was very soon after i made a decision to not do any more horror films um, I, I, I met with the people that were making the true life horror film of the story of the killing of Dorothy Stratton by her husband. Right. And it was an NBC TV movie. And I was cast as Dorothy. Yes. And, you know, that talk about a pivot. I mean, that was a, that was a pretty sharp pivot
2: yeah and a um, very intense movie, particularly considering it was made for television,
1: yes. and it 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 was intense. and it was incredibly sad. And just talking to you here, I moved, remembering what it felt like to walk on the set of the hotel room where he killed her, yeah. All these um, years
2: later, you still have it. Like I,
1: I I still remember those days in there and how sad that was. And it's no different than walking into the kitchen in Halloween ends, um, knowing we were doing the final sequence um, with within the movie, which was going to require... A lot of emotion and violence and confusion and and i i i'm 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 moved just thinking about it. Um, oh, it so it, it was it's it was also a,
2: a door closing to to a character that made you and you've lived with for forty four years,
1: y- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 Uh, yeah, I I tried not to think about it in those terms, I mean the last day was not in there, the last day was on another set and that day I woke up filled with emotion but that's the same as anybody feels when they're ending a work that you, as you so beautifully described in your uh-huh. introduction, those relationships that you've made, the continuity, the creative continuity, and, and the ending of something, it's hard, you know? Um, yeah. but, but the Dorothy Stratton movie absolutely removed me from low budget horror movies And within uh, uh, doing that and then this other little independent movie called My Love Letters, which was a a very sexual story of of, an older man and a younger woman. I remember Um, it
2: at Filmex, yeah.
1: But the audition then for Trading Places came up while I was shooting my love letters. Um, Do you
2: remember how the Trading Places thing came about? Do you remember coming soon?
1: Of course (laughs) I do. So, you know, the irony for me is I can link everything. I can link everything, direct links. So the only reason why John Landis knew me at all was because he was doing a documentary called Coming Soon about 1950s exploitation film trailers, those you know, crazy horror films and thrillers and sci-fi movies. And the documentary was called Coming Soon. It was a a documentary about those trailers.
0: Yeah.
1: And he needed somebody to narrate it and at the time i was the scream queen and so i remember my agents called me and said this guy john i knew who he was john landis was going to do this thing he wants you to narrate it and i met him and i didn't know him and you know the work was sort of banal i mean it's yeah i wrote and
2: produced it and well okay see i
1: don't remember much but yeah. When I say the work was banal, I didn't mean that as an insult to you. No, I no, you were a host. I'm saying it's a hosting gig. It's not, yeah. but clearly, as you can probably tell within 10 minutes of spending 10 minutes with me, I don't take shit seriously at all. <laughs> and I'm very serious about certain parts of my work, but I'm really loose. And John saw that and was amused by me, clearly. So when they were casting Ophelia in Trading Places, the only girl in Trading Places basically, the the female lead of Trading Places was a prostitute named Ophelia. And you know, and I know that Paramount had a list of 25 actresses that they wanted to play Ophelia. And I know because I've heard it, I've read it in something where John Landis said to them, no, I'm gonna hire Jamie Curtis. And I know that they did not want me in the part. Because mm. why would they want me in the part? And by the way, McGarris, I get it. Why would you want me in that part? When you could have had any number of very beautiful, voluptuous, and funny actresses, all of whom could have played Ophelia, and John said, no, I'm hiring her. That moment... Because of you, Mick Garris, because of coming soon, (laughs) because of that.
2: Because of your talent.
1: I'm telling you, because of you and that coming soon is how I met John, which is why I was cast in Trading Places. And by the way, Trading Places is what John Cleese saw and wrote the part in A Fish Called Wanda for me, called me at my home, said through a friend, a man named Ian Gordon, I had done, by the way, in the middle of all that, let's remember, I also went down the Nile for the Guinness Book of World Records special where David Frost went through Europe in a Rolls Royce limousine. Uh, and went to austria and england and germany and saw their activities and they needed a co-host who had some spunk <laughs> and they spunk. hired and they hired me <laughs> and i went down to south america with a crew <laughs> and went down the nile i mean went down the amazon in canoes with piranha And, you know, hung under Angel Falls, which I still remember to this day is 3,212 feet (laughs) because I had to do the narration on the edge of it. Um, And I met Ian Gordon, who was one of the producers of that show. Ian Gordon gave John Cleese my contact. I spoke to John Cleese. He had written this movie. He said, I'm writing this movie for Kevin Klein and you and Michael Palin. It's about America and England and sort of the cross-culture comedy. And it'll be very successful. And we're going to make it on a budget. And I want you to do it. And it was, again, my life got changed because he had seen, if he had never seen Trading Places, I never, ever, ever would have been in A Fish Called Wanda and just to finish that thread James Cameron saw a fish called Wanda and James Cameron wrote the part in True Lies for me so wow. all of those are connected back to coming soon <laughs> and horror movies weirdly and, enough
2: well it's it's fantastic that you conquered the world of horror films i mean you became the leading female lead actress in in independent horror movies and then people discovered your comedic timing and sense of humor and you were doing these comedies and then you're doing action movies like true lies and blue steel so three really different genres and you're conquering them all just shooting them down
1: you know what honestly i appreciate that mick garris you've always been such a beautiful cheerleader i (laughs) I'm conquering them because I didn't have anything to conquer. Yeah. I'm conquering them because I'm just there. My, the, my talent is that I'm there and willing to be there. And I don't have a lot of predisposed ideas of what I'm going to do in any given circumstances in anything. I show up as the person and, and you know, I mean, True Lies gave me such freedom. Jim Cameron gave me such freedom to work comedically. Nobody gives you that time and physicality to really create a character. So I, I feel incredibly, and by the way, just to weirdly connect the dot back to True Lies, You have to remember something, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, and I knew each other only because I was Tony's daughter. Because Uh when Arnold Schwarzenegger was first coming on the scene, who was his idol growing up? Tony Curtis, who did Arnold Schwarzenegger hire? To act in a movie that Arnold Schwarzenegger directed, the only movie Arnold's directed, Tony Curtis. So you see, again, the links back to all of these connections is weird. Now, Arnold would have never chosen me for True Lies because I was Tony's daughter. (laughs) It'd be like kissing your sister. You know what I mean? It's weird. (laughs) And it was Jim... I know it was Jim who said, no, this is the person I want because she can do this job. And Arnold has been the most delicious partner, but it took some convincing for him because I and I totally understand why would he want Tony's little daughter to be this his equal in true lies? I totally get it
2: right and then of course the relationship between jim cameron and katherine bigelow blue steel obviously is another link in that chain
1: yeah it's all a little it's all it's just all ultimately interconnected yeah. and i it's not random and I feel very clear about each step of the way and each thing that has led to another thing. And I have tried to stay very grounded to that reality because you can get in your head and show business or show off business as time want. <laughs> uh, and I want to be reminded that the reason I'm in Trading Places is because I did a horror film short about horror film trailers where I was a host. Yeah, That's why I'm in Trading
2: Places. Pretty amazing. Well, there was another turn for a while in your career, and I'm wondering if it was related to you. You married the brilliant uh, filmmaker and musician, Christopher Guest. You had children. You have uh, a couple of daughters. And you were making family-centric films, like My Girl and Freaky Friday. Was that due to that, you think, because of how parenthood might have had an influence on the choices you were making?
1: Oh, for sure. For sure. But that's the nature of the beast. You know, um, I made true lies when my daughter was five. And my only regret in show business really is that I didn't take my daughter with me on location. Uh-huh. I I I, in retrospect, feel like I should have taken her out of school, hired a teacher, had her with me the whole time because I was gone a long time. And although she came and visited me and I came home and we managed it and she was in first grade and that was super important and she had friends, I still that was the last time that I really felt I can't be a parent the way I want to be a parent and be off making these kinds of movies. So, you know, I made some family-centric movies. Um, uh, Yes, because I had family, I was less interested in doing, um, you know, uh, 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 parts that were intimate or sexual. I had young children that was important to me that I, you know what I mean? Uh, And it is a natural evolution as you start playing moms. And uh, I was very lucky uh, to have a couple of those. My girl was a monster success. And I will tell you something, Mick Garris. I will tell you something. I'm I'm a marketing girl. More than anything in the world, I'm a marketing girl. Like a total marketer. And like the first people I call on a movie is a marketing team. Um, I love marketing. And... I remember we made that movie, Howard Zeef directed it. And as soon as I saw the movie and I saw the poster and the poster had Anna Klumsky and Macaulay Culkin smiling and laughing. And I called the head of marketing and I said, you cannot put out this movie without a warning on the poster that issues of life and death are explored in this movie because the way it looked, Macaulay Culkin had done home alone. This was his next movie or he had done Richie rich. And this was his next movie. He was the biggest star in America, in the world probably. And this was the next movie and it had them laughing and he dies because he gets swarmed by a bee, swarm because they do some shenanigans and cause the bee swarm. and he's allergic to bees and they didn't listen to me and the movie went on to be a monster success but i still to this day feel like i should have threatened not to do press unless they warned parents because i had a seven-year-old at the time and I, if i had gone into that movie with macaulay culkin and then watch him die, and then watch him in a coffin, <laughs> I would have been so angry as a parent. Yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Well, well, family is really important to you, and this parenthood has led you to step outside the box in other ways as an author of children's books.
1: Yes. I mean, there's a
2: lot of them. There's a couple of dozen of them, I think.
1: Yes, there are 14 of them. And one coming, so we'll have a a 15 uh, next year. You know, that was an accident. And again, Mick Garris, I never thought I would write a book. I barely got out of high school. I got 840 combined on my SATs, um, (laughs) which is not good. And I'm a functional illiterate. I'm a total opstumath. I'm a total autodidact. I'm someone who learned later. I've self-educated. I've tried to increase my knowledge the older I get. Um, I did not do well in school. So the idea that I wrote books for children is a complete surprise, shock for me and you. Um, It was an accident. My four-year-old marched into my room one day in the way that a cherubic four-year-old does with their hands on their hips and Kind of that look in their face, and she announced to me, "She said, when I was little, I I wore diapers, but now I use a potty." And then she <laughs> marched out of the room. And it just it it. I remember ever. I remember where I was sitting. I remember what the room looked like, and I remember looking out the door. And she marched in, marched out. And I thought, wow. And I wrote it on a pad when I was little, a four-year-old's memoir of her youth. Because to her, her youth was like me looking back on having a cute shag and some bell bottoms. <laughs> like for a four-year-old, they have a youth. They ha- When I was one, I was like, And I loved that idea. And I just wrote a list of things that she couldn't do Then she could do now that she was four. And at the end of it, I wrote three things that made me cry. I wrote when I was little, I didn't know what dreams were when I was little. I didn't know what a family was when I was little, I didn't know who I was. But mm. now I do. And I realized I had tears pouring down my face. And I realized in that second, oh, this is a book for children about identity. Right. And I sent it via fax to my mother-in-law's best friend, Phyllis Wender, who became my literary agent. Uh-huh. And, she, and she sold it to HarperCollins at the time, Harper and Rowe, and they bought it as a children's book, and it came out two years later.
2: Amazing. Well,
1: I've written now 14 of them, and that's how they come out of me. I have no plan. I have no agenda. I don't sit there with a pad. I wait for the muse, it shows up, and I write
2: your childhood was fractured by uh, your parents split it up when you were just a few years old
1: yeah i was little
2: you were very little you were raised by your stepfather robert brant but you have one of those rare long long lasting marriages in hollywood there are a lot of pressures especially he's a filmmaker you're an actress and author um but you've made such a commitment to family that there was even a time in the early 2000s where you you wanted to give up acting to be able to commit to family. Tell me about that.
1: Well, you know, when your kids need you, you have to hear them. And there was a time where I felt like I needed to pull back my work to focus on my kids and my family, which I think I'm lucky to be able to do. I had the financial means to be able to take a step back and not lose my house. You know, many people don't have that luxury and that privilege. Um, I did that. Uh, That was a conscientious choice. Um, In my family of origin, there are 13 marriages. Wow. In my family of origin, me, my mother, my father, my stepfather. Between wow. those three people, there are 13 marriages. And this is my marriage. Like, I just yeah. decided this was my marriage. And by the way, good, bad, and ugly. And there's <laughs> yes. always good, bad, and ugly. And...
2: Close to 40 years.
1: For, uh, well, yeah, 38 this year. This December is 38. But, and you know, my joking... My joking commentary is the secret to a long marriage is don't leave it. Um, (laughs) And I say that kind of like a joke, um, but it's not a joke. And I actually also believe that the secret to a long marriage is understanding how much you can hate the other person (laughs) at times and still stay married to them. You know, I, my husband and I did a, did an interview for Marlo Thomas um, uh, and Phil Donahue for their book about long marriages. And I brought that up and I said, I bet you we're the only people who are talking about hating each other. (laughs) Um, in a book about long marriage and the truth is there are probably things about him that i hate and i'm sure there's or not hate but really you know just dis- strongly dislike yeah. and i'm sure there're things i mean, i know there're things about me he's incredibly quiet and and erudite and uh, i am i am not so quiet uh <laughs> i am i'm i'm you know i'm i'm very spontaneous and very energetic. I'm loud in a way. And I understand that's very hard to be around all the time. I wake up like this. This is who I am, like at four. I've been up since 3 40 this morning at this level.
2: Wow. Well, that's why you've got the career you've got. Yes. But you've you've also had other challenges. Um, you had to deal with pain uh issues that um you had to conquer and deal. oh
1: oh yes sorry as you said pain i was like pain issues i'm thinking like ah what happened no now i know what you're talking no, about no
2: i mean uh, you you had to deal with opiates um yeah 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 and yeah, a reliance yeah. on that and oh and that's a challenge for anyone but you're not only deep in a very active career but raising a family at the same time and i just wanted to talk a little bit about that and and how you managed to make your way through that
1: yeah thank you um well i will say i'm i'm i am the product of a lot of alcoholism and drug addiction in in my family of origin um i I became, wa- dependent is a, you know, a very soft word. I was, I, I had a real problem with opiates. Um, and uh, I, it, it was a pretty silent and hidden problem. It never became a tabloid problem, thank goodness. Um, but it was virulent inside me nonetheless. And, I was fortunate enough to uh, have a moment of clarity that brought me into recovery. And I've been sober. I'll come up 24 years in February. So and I'm very active as a sober person because it 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 is the only true accomplishment of my life. The the performing is just a natural part of me and I like it and I'm happy to do it. But my sobriety, I have fought very hard for.
2: How long did it take you to make your way through it?
1: Well, I mean, I, 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 I knew I had a problem for a long time, and I, I wasn't able to arrest it until I was. And I'm lucky. I, I, I can. I'm a very vocal, outspoken sober person. I try to connect to a lot of new sober people. I try to. Um, invite them in and let them know that it's not so scary. Um, You can have, you know, relationships sober, you can do everything sober. I've I've buried my parents sober. I've married both of my children in our backyard sober. Um, I have done a lot of work sober. And, um, you know, again, it's the greatest accomplishment of my life.
2: That's fantastic. Well, you're an activist in many ways, not just about sobriety. Um, you have blogged extensively for Huffington Post. Um, you are quite vocal about political and social issues on your social media. And I think it's a great opportunity to have the bully pulpit of celebrity to allow you to be outspoken in ways that could be influential in important times.
1: Yeah, i you know, i don't I didn't think I was going to be that. I just had strong feelings about injustice and um, uh, great admiration for people who are brave. I think there's so many brave, brave people. And, you know, what is the purpose of being famous? What is so that you can wear other people's clothes to the Venice Film Festival and stand there and pose in this kind of very uncomfortable way where none of those people look like themselves. Me included, by the way, I was so lucky to be able to wear a dress where I actually felt like alive in it. I was, I didn't feel like it was wearing me,
2: but- <laughs> And you, you were awarded the, at the Venice Film
1: Festival. I, 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 I was last year, but what is the point? What is the point? of all the fame and the invasion of privacy and all the rest of it. And what I realized is it's to help other people. It's to raise awareness, to be able to use the whatever. It's not a bully pulpit. It's literal lights and cameras pointed at you and you just get to turn them around. You know, what is social media for? To to highlight other people and the amazing work they're doing who don't get the amount of attention. I've been striving and getting a lot of attention for a long, long time. But I mean, really, what is the point of it all? The point is to highlight the great work that many, many, many people, brave, brave people from all over the world are doing on behalf of all of us. And the person who pops into my mind is Greta Thunberg, who sat in front of the Parliament House. that by herself in the cold with a little sign and the, the, she changed the world. And so I feel like I'm not, I'm not a, I'm a, I'm a humanist. I'm i I'm awake. I'm aware. I'm trying really hard to make the world a little better. I've started a charity. I'm sure you know about it. It's called my hand in yours. It's, It was a phrase I've used for a very long time in harsh moments for people when I would write them a note and I would say, I'm so sorry going through this. Maybe you lost, you know, maybe someone lost a parent and I'm so sorry I'm not there, but I love you and my hand in yours. Basically, I'm there with you. Just imagine what it would feel like. And I, right before the pandemic, I decided to try to raise money for Children's Hospital Los Angeles, which is an organization that I've worked with for many, many years. And I've created a store where a hundred percent of anything people buy on the store from the beautiful little sculptures that we have to, I mean, we have so many things. um, Every single penny that comes into that store is sent to Children's Hospital Los Angeles. My husband and I underwrite the store. We pay for everything so that if you go on myhandinyours.com and you <laughs> buy anything, be it a 15, a twelve dollar medallion or a hundred dollar sculpture or a tote bag, whatever it is, that money is going to the hospital. And it's been really wonderful to 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 try to um do that this the last couple of years.
2: Well, it's great that you can take the empathy that you use as an artist and as an actress and let it overflow into real life.
1: Yes, yes, yes. And then because, again, of Halloween, my fabulous... beginnings, because of Halloween, because of 44 years of playing Laurie Strode in the Halloween movies, I now, because the movie was so wildly successful, I now have a production company and I get to buy material and make movies and TV shows out of it. And so for instance, when you talk about compassion and empathy, i heard the story of the paradise fire i was listening to npr scott simon lizzie johnson the writer of the book was on scott simon on weekend edition on npr and i heard her t- telling the story um, of paradise and how the entire town was destroyed by this terrible fire called the campfire um and there's a particular story of a bus driver who saved the lives of 23 children through his heroism and actions. And I remember where I was in the car and I pulled the car over and I Twitter stalked Lizzie Johnson, literally Twitter stalked her until I reached her and I bought the book And we're making it into a film at Blumhouse. So I'm telling you, this is how my life has linked up. None of this was predetermined. None of this is from a position of distance and sitting back and going, hmm, what am I going to... It's all emotional. Hearing that story, that heroism, the courage of those people... um, realizing that you could tell a big story through the smaller lens of that bus trip. I, it moved me. It came from my heart and it came from, that's what led me to it. Not some career move where I'm trying to um, do, you know what I mean? But that's, that's, it's not from some position like I want to be a big shot it comes from a position i found myself weeping on the side of the road it's listening to this story and realized that it it moved me so greatly that that then became the impetus for me to then seek it out to become a producer
2: it's fantastic well one thing i need to talk about is everything everywhere all at once because it's an amazing movie, my favorite movie of the year. Um, and we had the Daniels on the show to talk about it and they were great. And it, I must confess, even knowing you, it took me two or three minutes before I realized that was you in the movie. Tell right. me about your experience in the film.
1: So um, I'm so happy. It's one of the great delights of my life, this weird little movie. Um, I was sent this script through my agents. It was certainly weird, and I didn't really <laughs> understand it. I met with them. I understood her, Deirdre Bobirdre. Um, I, I actually have... So I did a movie once called Daddy and Them with Ben Affleck. It was Billy Bob Thornton's movie. And I played Ben Affleck's alcoholic wife, (laughs) older wife. Okay. And when I went there, I said to them, I, I have an idea of the look. I really want to go out there a little bit. And they were like, great. And when I met with the Daniels, I brought this Polaroid and I said, I would like to go out there a little bit. And they were like, okay where's the camera on this this is me that's it that's
2: it yeah
1: okay (laughs) yes yes was i know it's hard to see oh no but but it's it was you know this character of this alcoholic lawyer and with ben and I I I just knew her. So I knew Deirdre. Didn't I didn't have to know anything else? I show up, of course, it's Michelle Yo, when they and I'm I'm saying, well, that's crazy amazing. I would really do anything to be able to work with her. Yeah. I didn't really, you know, I read something once, Mick, and then I don't read it again. Cause I don't want to have a whole thing where I'm just forever. Mm-hmm. you know, analyzing and you can't analyze this movie. Now, Michelle Yeoh had deep, deep amount of preparation and work. I just showed up (laughs) and kind of said, what are we doing today? I had the most fun. I was so free. Um, Deirdre was so emotional and so beautiful and I knew her so well and And then that we, and then the world shut down. Yeah. And then we finished the day, the day, the world shut down, March 17th. We finished the day that the lockdown started. So then two years went by. And then, you know, over the two years, I'd hear from everybody and whatever, but I didn't hear, you know, we all went off and kind of went into our own little world's. And then all of a sudden, I read it's been chosen to be the opening night film at the South By Film Festival last year. And I've never had a movie open at a film festival. And then I never saw it until the opening night screening.
2: Oh, what a perfect way to see it.
1: I just thought, why would I see it in a screening room? I know what the movie is. I didn't really know the spectacle of it. I didn't know the editing. I didn't know the music. I didn't know, I didn't know the depth of the performances because I also wasn't there that long. Yeah. But it is, it's turned out to be one of the just most beautiful, beautiful experiences of my career. And it was, it was, it was so loose and easy and the uh, daniels were so fun to work with and michelle and i became girlfriends and uh, you know lovers and we love each other uh,
2: uh it, it it's surprising you don't expect it to get as emotional as it gets
1: but that's that's the beauty of it yeah the depth and by the way when michelle and i were in our apartment we're in the hot dog universe we are now living together we're lovers and we are breaking up it, there is no dialogue written. We improvised the whole scene, wow. and it came down to um, a loofah. For both of us, I, I, I said to her, "I know I bought the loofah, but I know you really like it, and I don't really use it." So I'm going to leave it for you in the bathroom. And the minute I said that to her, the two of us started to weep. Uh. And, and it doesn't matter that we have hot dog appendages and we were so invested in this love story that was breaking up and it's just, a little miracle of a movie that then has just blown the fuck up. So also it's been super fun to be part of something that was so unexpectedly successful.
2: Uh, There's passion in every frame of that movie.
1: Every second of it.
2: It's just great. Well, I don't want to wrap up before we get into... Well, let's wrap up a Laurie Strode, because there's been a huge evolution from the 18 year old in Halloween to the mature adult Laurie Strode in Halloween ends. So tell me how that has affected you personally and, and how it's affected your approach to a character you created.
1: So David and Danny, the first two movies, Halloween and Halloween Kills, they created the world for Lori. They invented that world. That's what they determined the world would be and um, and I inhabited that world. So um, her isolationism, her depression, her her perseverating about the eventuality of him coming back. The fact that that has pushed away every person in her life and her family. Um, I understood emotionally. I played all those notes. Halloween ends. I had a little more, a little more input in of the emotionality of the movie. It's a really emotional movie. And the way that they've set it up is that in order for Lori to have a journey, she has to have accepted something to then have that acceptance broken again. And the acceptance is she finally has gotten mental health. She's finally had grief therapy. She's finally had PTSD therapy. Maybe she's on some mood stabilizers. You know what I mean? She has gotten the help and she's done the work. So when we meet her four years in, she has reconciled. Um, she's reconciled her daughter's death. She has repaired the relationship with her granddaughter. They are living together. There is hope. She sees Frank in the market, and they both blush like teenagers because we know they like each other. And there's hope, there's the beginning of promise, there's the beginning of healing. And then Michael comes back. Yeah. And it is so emotional and so brutal, the emotional toll that riding that, running that throughout the end of the movie was the most challenging week or 10 days I've ever spent ever in anything because the grief was so profound. So it, it, is, a, it is a bitter, sweet, bitter end ending anything is difficult. Um, I think the audiences will be, I know they're with her. And I think that's all that really, she's fiction, Mick, but she's not. And to the world, Laurie Strode is not a fiction. She represents something to people. She represents something to millions and millions of people. And the gravity of that representation for me really, really, really came into me in those last weeks. And I felt tremendous responsibility to honor her.
2: Wow. I mean, there's so much of you in it, but I also see shards of Deborah Hill, your great friend, of course, Deborah, who, who was responsible for helping create the Laurie character in the very beginning.
1: I think she, I think she is the voice of all the women in the movie. Uh, I think she's, um, um, PJ's character, Nancy's character, my character. I think she's the voice of all of them. I don't think John Carpenter, God bless him. Um, Southern boy from Kentucky. I don't. I don't see him writing uh, those women the way that Deborah. Uh, um, I think. I think. I think Deborah is very much the voice of Laurie Strode, and I felt a great responsibility at the end of this tale to represent her with um, truth and. You know, it's 44 years, Nick.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's
1: 44 years of Laurie Strode.
2: Yeah. It's powerful. There are a lot of franchises, but it's not the same, you know. And you have been central to the beginning, the middle, and the end. Yeah. So pretty great.
1: It's, you know, obviously the greatest thing in my life. Uh, in my professional life is. And um, I am grateful to David Gordon Green and uh, Jason Blum for giving new life to me, to me. I would never be a producer. I would never be a director. I would never be creating books and graphic novels of a movie I'm going to direct. I'd never I would have gone, I would have done something, but I would not have done that. I wouldn't have had the opportunity. I wouldn't have had the the access. I wouldn't have had it, had Halloween 2018, not come to me from David and Jason, born from John and Deborah. I would never have the life, the creative life I have today, The creative life I live now every day is directly responsible because of Halloween.
2: Well, that's fantastic and beautiful. And I can tell how much it means to you. It's, 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 it's. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jamie. Thank you, Mick. It's so so great to spend time with you.
1: Yeah, far out. I look forward to seeing you again.
2: Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.
1: Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.